Hey everybody, welcome back to the newest episode of the Pixelist Podcast. The podcast where we like to talk about all the nerdy things we enjoy. I'm Will, that's my buddy Blake, and today we're here to talk about a little bit of Exandria Unlimited Calamity. Which yeah, uh, I, I feel bad. We skipped we skipped Kaimal. <laughs> well, you know, we're we're gonna get to it. We're gonna get to yeah. it. Um we'll get there. <laughs> but you know, it's calamity time. And I I've been yeah. I've been so excited to talk to you about this. Um I for once watched an episode all the way through on Thursday night. I stayed up late just to watch it. And, so did I, which is funny that yeah. you know it, today's today's now the next Thursday, and yeah. we both actually watched it on the day it aired, but we just haven't been able yeah. to get to it till now, which is mostly my fault. I've been out of town for a few days. Um, it's that Memorial Day weekend. That's right, and you know, like we've uh, we're starting to make a habit of saying, but I'm going to say it again. We got in before the next episode, so it's fine, right? All that matters, dude. Um, it's all that counts. Exactly. We made it, and that counts for something. Um, but no, I, I've been itching to talk to you about this. So excited to talk about it. Um, you know, like I said, it is now the Thursday that episode two is premiering, so we don't have mm-hmm. too long to wait for that. Can't wait for it, and uh. I'm ready to just dive in, but I'm trying to think if there's anything else announcement-wise we need to say. I don't think so. Witcher season two? Yeah. Is it going to get old at some point, (laughs) joking about this? (laughs) Probably already has, but I'm going to still beat that horse. We're Uh, we're long past it. Uh, But yeah, okay. So in that case, let's dive into it. And uh, if you're new to us, um, if you're new to Critical Role, maybe you're checking out EXU Calamity. that's your first foray into critical role content. Um, what am I getting at here? Anyway, what we do here, we talk about each episode and we also recap each episode. So we're going to be doing that for EXU Calamity, just like we do for the critical role campaign proper. Um, and so we cut that recap out and host it separately on YouTube for your viewing um, convenience. So if you happen to find yourself on that video, hello, thanks for checking us out. Um, But we also have a longer extended form of the podcast where we are going to be theory crafting, discussing, giving our review on the episode. Um, So if you'd like to check that out, we always link that below. Um, I miss, I don't think I missed anything there, but I just felt real rusty. Sounded sounded good to me. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) let's do this thing all right yeah so okay so without further ado let us now jump into this recap of exu calamity episode one excelsior what a name i know (laughs) already sounds epic that's right (laughs) all right so the episode opens with uh brennan who is the dm for this series uh talking about how this is not going to be a fun one this is about grief, betrayal, and the coming of a new age. It is a prequel. It takes place before the vestiges of divergence, before the divine gate, and before this world was even called Taldore. Welcome to Gwisar. Then the episode proper starts, and we're just drudded straight into a sequence with Xerxes, uh, this human paladin. And he's told everything feels slow, and all he can hear is his own breath, but his mouth is filled with blood. And he's just received like a massive blow to the head. Something is wrong. And not just with the situation, but something is wrong in the spirit. 
and he starts to see blurred shapes come in and out of focus a building appears and the city that surrounds it is now a hellscape suddenly there's a burst of energy and it's fast at first but then slow motion and Xerxes finds himself just kind of floating through space from this blast and he's just looking around looking for anything he can recognize anything he knows more explosions more disconnected moments and time kind of pulsing before him and finally he does see something he knows a boy five years old red shock of hair and it's his son he recognizes this as his son alias sitting with a fishing rod the line kind of dangling down into this like infinite dark void <clears throat> xerxes then fights his way to make his way to his son and eventually is able to kind of get out of this sluggish weird slow motion movement and is able to move freely he calls to his son and the boy insists that he's just fishing uh, and xerxes makes his way to him is able to look down into this void that his fishing line is going down into and all he sees are stars stars he recognizes um and suddenly he feels this reassuring presence behind him and uh, a griffin is there formed of starlight and pure magic and it basically nuzzles against him and xerxes then hears something uh in draconic which he doesn't speak but he recognizes the word gordranus and that like sticks with him uh alias then tells him uh dad you know i'm not going to look like this when you get home and then he's like oh wait i think i've caught something then suddenly this massive red body crashes down in front of them like uh, the size of a mountain and it's this gargantuan form writhing in pain it has uh it has horns and brennan describes it as older than the world um the figure says i'm sorry and my child i fear i'm too late then this massive red figure opens up its hand and there is like this ghastly projection of a tree that it's creating uh an illusion of sorts with its hand uh xerxes now finds himself standing in the hand as well and behind him there is now a ghostly projection of his husband um evandrin excuse me and xerxes recognizes that this is not real this is this projection is merely that it's a memory and not actually happening um but he's still comforted by the fact that you know this image of his his husband is here and the image uh rolls up to this tree that was also projected and then something just feels wrong the uh event the image of evandrin like falls down to his knees as if like uh maybe perhaps being stabbed by something or something had happened it clutches its uh stomach and then all of a sudden <laughs> another massive figure slams down and lands with uh the red one its foot on the throat of the horned red figure uh xerxes looks up and he does not see a face he instead sees the featureless visage of the sun itself um presumably the dawn father has come down from the heavens as well and is stepping on this red figure's throat uh xerxes is still in the palm of this hand and is like what's going on and uh the sun figure says turn your eyes away from the center he is beyond redemption he has betrayed his kin uh the horn figure then looks to xerxes and says ask yourself just who did we betray 
And then Xerxes slips up his hand and it's like, stop towards the, the sun figure. And all of a sudden the sun figure is like thrust outwardly and is just like, they're gone. And, um, the red figure is like, you just, you just saved me. What you just did, no mortal can do. Brennan, <clears throat> the DM then asks, uh, kind of just aloud to Xerxes and says, you know, if you look down and see the stars, what are you going to see if you look up? Uh, and so then Xerxes kind of makes his way, looks up, and he says that you see uh, the ground fast approaching. And with that, Brennan's like, you wake up. So that entire sequence has been this uh, dream sequence from Xerxes. And he wakes up covered in slet, writes down the word Gordranus, and then gets up and walks over to the balcony of his tower, which is the tower of the first night of Avalir. And it's a beautiful day in the city. And... We kind of then transition to our next character introduction of Loquacious, which uh, as Xerxes is looking over the, through the city, he sees all these screens um, and this massive waterfall at the top of the city. And suddenly an image starts like appearing on the waterfall as if it too is a screen. And we have the image of the changeling Loquacious, who is um, Sam's character. And Loquacious uh, is basically like a news anchorman that is reporting the news of the city and he does this every morning um, so he starts giving the daily announcements and you know says it's the eve of the replenishment there are lots of events and festivities to be had uh, and then he runs through a couple ad reads but because he's a changeling he actually morphs his appearance like into the person that is giving the ad i think what he specifically does here is like some ad for orison's uh glue and so he turns into orison um so after he does the announcements uh the kind of the broadcast ends and loquacious turns to his assistant and kind of has a moment where they're running through like all the different things uh loquacious has to do um discussing his to-do list and uh most importantly there are some of like the screens the crystal columns i believe they're called for his broadcast are malfunctioning in one part of the city and he's like how has this not been fixed yet like did you tell them like i need this fixed and He's like, okay, you know what? I'll just reach out to the arcane architect myself um, because, you know, it is my ex-wife. And so he's deciding he's going to go deal with that in person. Then we transition um, to Laren, the uh, <clears throat> said arcane architect. And this is a Bria's character. And she is this female elf wizard basically just at work on this massive arcane engine deep beneath uh, the city of Avalir. And she's just staring at it. Um, trying to figure out what else can I like improve? What else can I perfect on this? I've reached the point where basically everything is already perfected. Um, and as she's having that thought, she gets a, what I want to call a phone call. They've got like these arcane bracelets that essentially are kind of like cell phones. Um, so it rings and she picks it up and it's just, uh, I think Guildmaster Akami Ro and just catching her up on the status of the upcoming conjunction of the two cities weather looks good we should have arrival shortly after 1 a.m uh, so while she's dealing with that another man approaches in real life not through the phone um and he claims he has news he's just come from the grand geometer and says that hey you told me that if the reading was ever above a 0 0.025 you wanted to know immediately so that's why i'm here the reading is 0.5 laren is stunned by this and is like uh okay and so she heads back to her quarters 
and with an arcana check of 27, she recalls about celestial solstices and how every 20 to 30 years, the, the veil between realms becomes very thin. But every 120 years, there's something called an apogee solstice where everything aligns and the veil is so thin that like this incredible magic can be achieved. Um, the magical ley lines of Exandria itself can even be remapped in an apogee solstice. And there's just, this is means crazy things are possible essentially. And what the grand geometer is, is it's this measuring device that uh, measures the shifting of those ley lines. And um, anything over a 0 0.025 means that there is a shift happening. And again, like uh, she was just told, it is currently reading 0.5. So Lairon begins to like just weep. This has been everything she's been working for for so long, everything she sacrificed. And now she has so little time to actually take advantage of the moment. But as she's dealing with that, a knock comes at the door and it is loquacious, her ex-husband. Um, they've got some typical, you know, ex-married couple back and forth. Um, <clears throat> and as they do, uh, Brennan describes all these spell kites coming into Avalir and essentially the two cities, Avalir, Kath Moira, the replenishment means they're coming back, conjoining together. And this is a big joyous event. And part of it is the people of Kath Moira send up these spell kites, which have food letters, you know, just cute little items and gifts that float up to the people on Avalir to kind of welcome them back. Um, and as that's happening, we kind of have another transition of kites arriving at the vault of the golden scythe and the goals of the, the vault of the golden scythe, excuse me, uh, is this just place of unfathomable wealth. There are countless automatons buzzing around wheelbarrows full of perfect diamonds and gold. Uh, Brennan even mentions a bridled unicorn. And at the center of all of this is Nidus, uh, who is a human uh, male sorcerer slash bard. And um, he is the guild master of this place. Uh, and he is quickly approached by his chief bookkeeper, who tells him that they are over budget on wands and they need to figure this out. Uh, Nidus is like, it's the replenishment, spare no expense, like do what needs to be done. Um, and Nidus handles a few other little like business fires that need to put out as he is the guild master. Um, before finally another man comes up to him, uh, Magister Milus Friend, Milus Friend. Um, and Nidus doesn't recognize this person. Uh, he even rolls a history check and is told, yeah, you don't know who this person is. Um, he's nobody. So Nidus is like almost offended that this like nobody would come ask him for a favor. And he's like, this man is far below my station. And like, how dare you even ask? <laughs> he doesn't say that to him, but that's kind of how he feels. And because that is the situation, Nidus's assistant barges in and interrupts to kind of save him from the moment. Um, now, once again, we transition and we are heading on over to Cloudstone, which is this large marble building with a massive like eye overhead. Um, it's not a place of magic and robes or, um, uh, arcane, but more, uh, weaponry. Uh, Brennan describes it as magic does not echo here. It is a place of sharp clarity. And here we're introduced to Guardian of the Seventh, Senior Sight Warden of the Eyes of Avalir, Serret. And he is a male Euphora, like a bird person. 
And he walks into this room with a collection of artifacts, magical items, and just ruined items all floating around in this pure white uh, room of marble. It's very uh, Minority Report-esque. Yes, yes, exactly. I thought the yeah. same thing. <laughs> and a half-orc named Orwin walks up to Sarret, and he, uh, the half-orc actually refers to Sarret as Pinch, which is one of his nicknames. So he asks Pinch about... Um, Oh, no, excuse me. Orwin reports about his time over Vasselheim and says that, hey, the Archmage Vespin Chloris has gone missing. The people of Vasselheim are worried about this. Um, they're worried that maybe some heresy against the gods has taken place, and they want us to check to see if maybe Chloris is hiding here. Um, rumor has it that Chloris maybe tried to replicate the matron's ritual. Uh, Orwin then asks you know, actually, where did we get all this stuff? And um, he's told that a member of the Ring of Silver said it needed to be saved for like posterity and academic reasons. Sarah then says, all right, light it up. And in the center of the hall, using pure transmutation magic, meaning this is not an illusion, but an actual one-to-one -one replication, um, the sanctum of Vespin Chloris is recreated in perfect detail. Sarah then investigates the scene, kind of like swiping through the room, and with a very high investigation check, he notices that there are glyphs, both of celestial and infernal origin, and something else on the floor that is like very badly corroded um, and nearly destroyed. Uh, he examines that and notices that it has been disenchanted, and it was formerly much larger. Um, with his really high roll, though, he realizes that this item wasn't specifically disenchanted. However, there was some wave of energy that just as a byproduct happened to disenchant anything that it passed through just due to proximity. And for something to have done that, Sarah recognizes that it had to be extremely powerful. Um, he also notices the remnants of what appears to be a summoning circle that was also eradicated by this wave. And recognizing these things Sarah tells orwin like hey nobody can know about this yet like i need to run this by some people higher up first and then <laughs> we transition to the pinnacle of avalir this magical floating city where we see the archcept home to the most powerful wizards in the city and before it is this massive statue of amir the bold who is the wizard whose magic lifted avalir uh into the sky originally um and at the foot of this statue is the Archmage of the uh, Librarium Incantatum, Pesha, a middle-aged elven woman and granddaughter to Amir. Um, she unexpectedly sees Eladmir the Wise, one of the true seven, which is like the their seven like leading wizards of this whole city. Um, and Eladmir tells Pesha, it's a pleasure to meet you face to face. He ha He knew her grandfather and basically starts telling her a few stories that she already knows but is just being polite um and with the small talk they then get into you know how is everything coming along for the replenishment and yada 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 uh, but Aladmir also has a couple of apprentices with him and one of those says hey aor may be preparing an attack on lathris uh, Pesha, do you have something up your sleeve for this? Now may be the time to use it. Uh, he then also mentions that artifacts from Vasselheim have made their way into the city, into the possession of Sarret. 
um, and explains that these items may have been used to replicate the maiden's ritual. That's the rumor going on. Eladrin is concerned by this news and tells Pesha that, hey, anything you learn about that, you come tell like me directly. Like, Don't use the usual channels like come tell my apprentice or me. And with that, having introduced all of the members of this cast here, we go into the first half <laughs> break. And oh my gosh. Try to get through that as quickly as possible, but I'm sorry. Yeah, I mean, so many amazing details that uh, Brennan described. So great job. It, it, there's definitely, if you're watching the replay, you need to watch the whole thing, by the way, because it's great. But yeah. Um, Picking up from the break, uh, you know, if you've been wondering at this point, how are all these people going to get together? It's because on the eve of the replenishment, which is like we'll mention, it's when um, Avalier is basically going to land. Um, I, I think of like the spaceship from the first um, Star Wars uh, you know, like the big ring that yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. goes into. It's kind of like that, and it lands around the city of Kathmoira, and like all of the ether it's built up, it re like releases into the land, and that's the replenishing. And so, the night before that happens, uh, they have this big party called the Parade of Beasts, uh, including a specific dinner called the Feast of Amir. Um, so the way the party all gets together is they are all arriving at Excelsior Plaza, uh, specifically at the Palazzo Porco, where they're going to have this feast. And um, you find out that all of these people are part of really, they're, they're like a band who gets together and they talk <laughs> about stuff going on in the city. And um, they've met plenty of times before. Uh, it's a little vague. Um, Xerxes on this group um, because they mentioned that it's one of the it, it, he's brand new to this title of first night um, it's not really clear exactly what that title means but he's he's clearly like because of his either courage or like his proficiency in battle he's risen to this rank where now he's part of this council I guess um, but so the party they they arrive at this feast and they all arrive um think about like red carpet arrival you know at the oscars that's kind of what it's like yeah yeah and so um loquacious who also goes by quay you know when he arrives he kind of feigns this like oh no like all this attention but secretly he like really loves it and um you know his ex-wife's kind of bitter because he's got like this young girl named bolo um who's, <laughs> who's like hanging on his arm and it's kind of like your cliche like idiot young girlfriend in the movies i guess <laughs> Um, so, you know, she's asking all these questions, um, you know, he's enduring the reporters, uh, Sarah just sort of flies in kind of unnoticed. Um, and Xerxes comes in on his Griffin. Uh, and so once the party has kind of all made their way to the feast, they do eventually kind of steal away and get together and begin talking about, you know, Hey, what's going on in the city? And uh, we'll mention an interesting detail about um, Loquacious noticing certain, like, um, uh, not cameras or, like, TV screens, but, like, certain elements not working in the city. They also mention how they haven't heard from, uh, and I, I can't remember the name of it, um, the Hall of... Um, oh, yeah. Know it, Will? Um basically it's 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 a division in the city where the people who can sort of um have prophetic vision can see what's going to happen right. or it's not quite clear if it's like that if it's that deliberate but that they have like a gift of foresight basically 
and that those doors have been closed. They haven't heard anything from those people in some time. It's kind of odd considering it's in the city. Um, also, Xerxes mentions the dream that he had and basically says, I think I dreamt of like a war between uh, the prime deities and the betrayer gods. Um, and the party, since they don't know him quite well enough, are kind of thrown by this. But I think it's Sarah who kind of determines this. This is a bit detailed and it's kind of unlike Xerxes just to make up a dream. Um, so they talk about that. And specifically, uh, Xerxes mentions the draconic expression, uh, Gordranish, which they realize means gathering of shadows. And the lore behind that is that when one of the betrayer gods was sealed, so to speak, um, like sealed in the depths of in Exandria's world, um, hell, basically, um, he basically like in his final words said that he would gather his shadows to him. And it was basically like an expression of like omen of like returnal basically. Uh, and so that expression has a, um, very, very apprehensive, apprehensive connotation around it, uh, that they discussed. They also know that, um, well, Sarah mentions some of the artifacts that they picked up from the um, home of Vespin Chloris from Vasselheim. And specifically, they're curious about this guest coming to the party, party named Pervon Sol, who is a um, champion of the, um, uh, the Raven Mother. Um, is that right? Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah. The, the yeah. Raven Queen, like the, Raven the matron Queen, of ravens. Mat yeah, matron of ravens. Thank you. And uh, so they're curious about this guy. They want to meet this guy. And essentially what ends up happening is, uh, as parties tend to do, um, the party actually does split up um, to kind of cover a couple of like the most important things. Um, specifically, actually, before this happens, I will mention that Laren, who's noticed sort of like the spectrometer reading, um, realizing that there's these artifacts from Vespin Chorus is immediately intrigued and is kind of like, I think she even makes a comment like, that's what I need for like the next steps of like what what's coming i guess yeah and it's not meant in like a very um it's not meant like in an evil way it's just like because this is like a, a massive moment in history that's probably the perfect item that that um i will need um and i should also mention uh, without getting too in the weeds there's a lot of also references to the different like governing bodies within the city mm -hmm. uh, there's comments on like the court of owls who are present um there's something called the ring of silver mentioned i think there's also like a ring of gold mentioned yep. so i wonder if there's a ring of bronze i don't know if they mentioned one but i remember thinking like i wonder if there's one um and these are sort of like different like echelons of like authority um within the city um and they also do find out that this sort of rusted, burned away item was formerly a bow. Um, and it was a bow, I think, of like a solar champion or something to that effect. Yeah, I think they're just <laughs> called solars. It. Yeah, yeah. But so like angels, kind of. Exactly. I think of like a celestial angel who has a bow. <laughs> yeah. You know, a, you know, a, a cupid you don't want to mess with, I guess. <laughs> but, um, all that to say, um, Xerxes and Loquacious, basically, they want to go talk to Pervon Sol. Um, 
And specifically, Xerxes is, is apprehensive around this dream. And so he's thinking, this is someone that I can talk to who has sort of a connection to the prime deities. And yeah, really, I just want to know what's going on. So they go off to talk to him. And in this conversation, this is a character who um, has a pet wolf, basically. Yeah. Uh, the dude's cool. <laughs> uh, there's a really fun like back and forth between Brennan and um, Loquacious where Loquacious is kind of like, you know, hey, would you give like a exclusive interview? Um, <laughs> it's just a great character. Yeah. But Pervon basically admits that they are aware already of Vespin Chloris, but there's something different about Vespin Chloris. And it's basically implied that since the um, Raven Queen's ascension um, to godhood, that there have been an endless number of, you know, think of like drunk mages who are just like, you know, oh, I want to, I'm going to do that. And so there's, there's kind of like this sort of not laughing stock, but kind of like this, like joking or camaraderie around like, oh, another one of those, like these crazy people trying to do the same thing. Yeah. But he points out that that's not the case with Vespin Chorus, that something was different here. And it's got, essentially it's got the deities spooked a bit because, um, and we get a bit of the background too on, on, uh, the matron of Ravens, how, when she ascended, uh, she ascended and then she actually killed the previous, uh, God and quote, like smote his name from like the history books, so to speak, in a very epic way. And Purvon Sol basically says that that the deities have all spoken and none of them felt any kind of intrusion on their domain. Yeah. So the way the conversation goes then is that Vespin Chloris wasn't trying to ascend to become of God and take out one of the prime deities, but that he actually potentially descended to the realm of the betrayer gods either to take one's place or to maybe even free one. Um, so it's pretty clear that Vespin's not a good dude. <laughs> but uh, Pervon basically also implies like, hey, the people you make your company with aren't to be trusted. Like these are, uh, I think he calls them like a brood of vipers. Like these yeah. are very greedy people and you would do well to just be mindful of who you keep your company with. So that happens separately um at the feast there are these automatons um i can't think of what they're called um there was an actual like expression for them yeah you he, he kept calling them like his scarecrows or something but there was some yeah, other word there was scarecrows crow-esque but there was an actual name for them yeah, yeah. um but regardless oh uh Habedad. Hobbit oh yeah, yeah or <laughs> yeah. something we get it <laughs> well there's this one automaton who's basically serving drinks and like suddenly glitches and um there's something very odd about it because this is very uncommon this is an uncommon sight and then it basically falls over and sort of deactivates and all the champagne it's holding like spills out uh Sirit, who i have thought of as kind of like the um Tom Cruise detective of Minority Report immediately <laughs> notices like something's off here. He goes, he scoops up uh, the automaton, takes it to a private room, and then rolls an investigation check uh, or possibly a perception check. And he also has two class um, abilities that also enhance that check. And he rolls a 31. It's a crazy high roll. And with the 31, he's looking it over. And Brennan, our GM, mentions, You're not alone in this room. 
Um, Brennan has an absolutely amazing description of how the invisibility spell works mm-hmm. and basically says that to be, to cast invisibility, you can't be perfectly invisible. You have to still let your pupils, uh, be exposed so that the light can come in. You can actually still see. And so, um, with the 31, um, Sarah is looking in a mirror and he notices behind him, these two tiny pupils in the, behind him, um, like the size of a grain of sand immediately pulls his axes slashes kills this person um which you know it could have been a good person i don't know but (laughs) kills him dude falls over and coming out of the invisibility spell is this ragged shell of a person who's been mutilated lips have been cut off eyes are orange and bloodshot he's got patches of skin that are sort of like stitched together And it's just this dead body in front of him. And then he hears this voice behind him that says, you'll never reach the wild mother's embrace in time. And he looks and in the mirror is sort of like this swirling fog. And he sees the mutilated face of Vespin Chloris. Uh, there's, this, there's this great moment where Brennan actually screams and reaches at Travis <laughs> and Travis screams. And uh, the mirror basically cracks, Vespin disappears. And um, that is where our episode ends of Calamity, episode one, Excelsior. Man, it was so good. It was amazing. Um, Yeah, it's so much to talk about. By the way, if you're just checking our recap, you want to see the whole discussion, which why wouldn't you? This has been um, an amazing entry into this four-part series. Check the link below. See the whole video that we're talking about today. well, I got some bad news. You hated it? I think Brennan might be a challenger for the throne that is Matt Mercer's DM ship. There's, he was dang good. He was. He was incredible. I, uh, I think he definitely belongs in the conversation. Um yeah, I uh, I've never watched Dimension Twenty or any of the other uh, yeah, shows either. that he's a DM of, but it sounds like I need to check it out because he absolutely blew me away. Um, he was incredible. Um, yeah, my wife watched with me too, and she was like, she basically kept being like, "Oh my gosh, <laughs> this guy is he's kind of unassuming." Like, like I just didn't know what to expect, and then I was like, "This guy might be a serial killer." He's like, <laughs> he's so good at like everything. Yeah, the the whole episode was just great. Um and I think it's a lot Brennan's skill, uh the whole cast's skill, really. But obviously Brennan yeah. is kind of the one captaining the ship, so got to give him a lot of credit. But also, um it's just so cool and these things all play together, but it's also just so cool that this is a high-level one-shot for lack of a campaign, I guess. And not only high level, but like high importance. So I feel like all those things are coming together to make like this really cool experience. Um, So not not to take anything away from Brennan, give him all the credit, but I also just think that the stakes kind of are also attributing to just like how epic this felt. Um, You know, all this lore that just got dumped on us in the best way. Not (laughs) don't mean that in a bad way at all. Um, he layered it in with such like care and finesse. Uh, and I don't know, I, I'm, I'm repeating myself now, but I just think 
the expert level of him and the cast, the high stakes, the high level, all this like groundwork world lore that we're finding out. I feel like it was all just this beautiful chemistry of an amazing episode. I think I'd one episode in definitely probably top 10 critical role episodes for me. Yeah, it was amazing. And um, you mentioned the stakes. I mean, obviously we, we know a bit of the background of the calamity. So it's, it's a bit implicit of like, okay, we, and they've also said like, Hey, this is, this is not a happy ending type of story. Yeah. Um, you know, and you and I joked about, this is like very much halo reach vibes. So we kind of have an, an, an insight into maybe where this is going. Um, but despite that, I, I, you know, again, hats off to the team because you really kind of feel that tension in those stakes in this episode. I mean, that, that could have been easily mishandled or just oh, yeah. um, not recognizable. And yet I, I'm really waiting for the sh- other shoe to drop, I guess. Like it really feels, I mean, Laren, Laren being excited about this like spectrometer reading. I'm like, okay, well, we're, that's probably really bad, actually. <laughs> You know, I mean, and also I loved like the lore behind that, which we'll have to talk about that specific detail of the Apogee yeah. solstice for campaign three, by the way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's pretty much everything that was happening. I was like, okay, that's going to be really bad. Okay. That's going to be really bad. And you know, we mentioned like the TVs like not working in certain areas. Um, that one particular hall that's like gone totally silent. Yeah. Um, it definitely feels like we're on the edge of, um, doom, the calamity. And, yeah. I mean, that's, that is credit to the whole team. I mean, it's, they have definitely, um, they presented that first episode really well to sort of set the stage. Yeah, absolutely. And golly, the first 15 <laughs> minutes of the first episode right. just came out swinging, you know, right. I'm, uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll discuss that specifically i'm sure too but just while we're getting our initial thoughts out still uh that was incredible i just the i so we talked about brennan i also was not familiar with uh luis carrizo or lou wilson um the two new player uh, uh, abria i guess is new but you know if you've been watching critical role you're familiar with her already um they all killed it, you know? Um, right. I mean, everyone in the cast killed it, but special shout out to the new people since I wasn't familiar with them either, but it was just so good. Like everyone, everyone's character, like I, like I just previously mentioned is high level or also like high renown, I guess I could say like, they all seem very important. And I loved how, you know, I kind of touched on it in the the first half recap, but like, I would say Brennan did like 70% of like the heavy lifting in those moments, but they brought a lot too, you know, like sure. each, each one of them kind of had like fires to put out as their character like would deal with. And I just sat sure. there being like, man, they're all so good and have like so much. It feels like they've sat in these characters for a long time and that this isn't episode one. Um, yeah. Laren and Loquacious are really good at being divorced. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was great and yeah i don't know i just not to get above the table here but part of me just wondered like i wonder if all those things were discussed prior to like was brennan like okay you know nidus as the guild master of this thing 
here's all these things that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. Like here's what, you know, blah, blah, blah. Versus how much of that was kind of like improv in the moment of like, all right, you know, take care of these wands, like do that kind of stuff. Um, was just impressive regardless of which explanation yeah, I mean, I think, it is. I don't think, I mean, I don't think there was probably, I mean, let's get real. It's, it's a four episode series. So there's probably like, they're, they're probably not totally in the dark. Um, and you and I talked about, I don't know if you're my kid crying in the background, but um, <laughs> you and I talked about in that critical role campaign three episode where it was the, they were doing the heist and it was like the journal of Vespin Chloris and everyone right. was like, Oh, you know, and you were like, there ha- okay, there has to be, yeah, they have, yeah there's so, a reason for that. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there's, I think there has been communication. I think there has been dialogue. I think like Nidus, for example, like with the wands, I think it's probably the conversation is like, okay, let's build the character together. Okay, great. Now here's the position you fill. This is Mm. who your character, um, like sort of his authority, I guess, so to speak. And then, uh, and that was probably collaborative. I don't think it was like necessarily handed to him, but yeah, I imagine. So I think, I think the reactions, like, especially like the, we didn't mention in the recap, but when they were talking about the wands, they were negotiating on like, let's, okay, how can we maybe get some extra wiggle room? on this deal i think mm. that that was probably all just um natural skill set and uh you know um just coming up with it on the fly and which again you know speaks to uh they're all very much deserving of being at the table um and it's a different vibe from exu originally for better or worse <laughs> it's a different vibe i think because you have people who seem to actually, I don't know, um, uh, Nidus's and Xerxes, um, like their backgrounds in terms of D and D, but, um, with the EXU originally you had two characters, um, who had never played before more openly were like, I've never played before. And in those first couple episodes, there was even like, Oh, so, Oh, so that's what advantage means. Oh, Oh, I should have rolled it again. Right. And so, um, which again, nothing against that cast, but I think it is a bit of an interrupter compared to what we've seen so far in this first episode, which has felt like a cinematic story already. Um, yeah, but I guess we'll see when combat happens. If that (laughs) still holds up. Yeah. A hundred percent though. I know what you're saying. Like they all, I'm just going to repeat myself all day today, I guess, but they all were like experts, like their characters and also the way, like their portrayal of them. And, you know, and that's not to say that, I mean, everyone messes up rules, so I'm sure we'll get some of that right. in combat and what have you, but yeah, it was I just... love Ashley Johnson, but she's always like, wait, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, but, um, uh, so Lou Wilson, I know, I think, and again, I've never watched dimension 20, so y'all please correct me down below, but I think he's one of like Brennan's regular players, um Luis might be as well but I'm just not sure on that one but Lou I know at least has some experience and uh seems like Luis might as well or he just is a very quick learner cuz it was all so natural it it felt to me like like the pilot episode of like a Game of Thrones level show like I'm getting introduced with all these names and concepts right. um 
you know, obviously I'm bringing some knowledge to the table because of critical role, but really not that much because we don't know the bureaucracies of how the Avalier was run and stuff. And I just thought that uh, with so much information, so much new things, it never felt, I never felt like, uh, like completely bogged down and like what's happening here, which I think is a, a testament to Brennan's ability to kind of. Right. It makes me wish we had, like, I'm, I'm ready for the Avalier publication or, oh, you know, man, yeah. calamity. Like I want to dig in on like the different, you know, levels of authority and like different organizations and, you yeah. know, ring of silver, ring of gold. Like, okay. So like, is that something that you ascend into or like, are you assigned into it? And like, that's your now rank for the rest of your life or these are just things I think about, but, um, you make a good point though. I never felt like, okay, wait, wait, pause it. Hang on. Like th- it was slight enough to accentuate the world building without it feeling, um, like you said, like bogging down the story. Yeah. And man, I, I hope you're right. I hope there is like a, like a, a source book or an addendum or something they put out about yeah. this, this pre calamity time. Cause I just want to, it's such a cool world that Matt's built yeah. and I want to know I, more about it. Yeah. And speaking of like the world itself, I think I read a tweet confirming that the red horned, the horned red faced figure is as Asmodeus. Mm, yeah. Uh, which I guess, guess they, I think I, what I'd read was that they can't directly couldn't directly um maybe can't use that name specifically yeah right something to that effect but Mm -hmm. that it basically was asmodeus um which my wife funny enough just like random coincidence in our DD campaign her character's home has been basically invaded by asmodeus and so she was like asmodeus (laughs) i was like yeah that's that's crazy there's a a rich DD history i mean yeah (laughs) you know it's not nothing new i guess but (laughs) anyway yeah that's that's freaking awesome more on i guess i guess asmodeus in a minute yeah uh, yeah which i mean we're just waxing poetic i guess on on things now i think it's clear we both really enjoyed it um mm-hmm. i guess we can move on to more concrete things uh i get i mean i don't even know where to start i guess just the characters i thought they were all amazing like i would we're getting three more episodes with them. So that's, I'm excited for that. But like we already mentioned, these are probably not going to end well for these people. Um, So I'm already sitting here thinking like, man, I would love like a prequel to this to show like, how did Serret become like the site warden and how did Xerxes become the first knight of, of uh, Avalier? They're just, they're all so cool. Um, Right. And I don't really know where I'm going with this topic of conversation, but just, I thought everyone well, I, I mean, was amazing. What happened to Evandrin, his husband? Yeah. You know, because um, it seems like it's still not, not necessarily recent, but like the pain is obviously still pretty tangible. Um, it's also not clear his relationship with his son, like what happened there. I think it was implied that the son is, I guess, while he's maybe doing the duties of first night, his son maybe lives with, I think, was it Nidus's sister-in-law and her husband? Or something to that effect. Oh, I didn't put that together, but yeah, I, think, I know he's Nidus gets like a letter or something either from his brother-in-law or his sister-in-law. Yeah. Yeah. He does. Um, and basically like, I think passed it along to Xerxes saying that like, you know, Elias was doing well, but that, you know, he's kind of, he's at a tender age. And so, you know, 
he's been been a little sensitive lately yeah. or something to that effect. So again, it was very subtle. So I don't know if I right. pieced that together right. No, I mean it's, uh, clearly he's with someone, which we assume again that Evandrian is not alive. So uh, I, I just I'm sure that is what's going on. That's really interesting. I didn't I didn't pick up on that. Um, but yeah, you know, to me, based on at the very beginning of the episode, you know, he's like, dad, I don't look like this anymore. I think cause he probably hasn't seen him in like seven years. Cause yeah, that's like the amount of time the cities are apart or something, which maybe yeah, he's he seen said, him in the interim, but yeah, he said that he was turning, uh, I think 14 or 15 years old, which I was like, okay, good. His son's alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For now. Uh, yeah, there's just uh, there's uh, this is why I need a prequel so we can find out about how everything got here, which we maybe find out all the things we want to know within these episodes anyway. Um, but just just also good, yeah, also good. And is there anything else specific you wanted to say on them? Sorry, I'm looking at my notes uh, on characters. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, you know, no, not whatever. particular. I mean, I'm curious. I mean, just echoing what you said about prequel content would be even better. I mean, Pesha's um, grandfather, uh, yeah. Amir. I mean, there seems like some really great content there. Um, and maybe these are just characters that are going to get re- referenced, um, you know, uh, in, in another chunk of EXU content, another like one shot or two shot yeah. or, you know, what have you. So that's a great point. I mean, you know, why not? Like, wh- why not have the next EXU be even set before this? And maybe we get Lou and Luis coming back and some new people. Yeah. That'd be, that'd be awesome. It is cool, um, you know, just how advanced. Like, I just never really thought of Taldore or, like, current times critical role as, like, post-apocalypse. Yeah. But comparing it to just the subtle details that really just imply just how advanced Avalier and the different kingdoms are. It definitely gave me a vibe of like, Oh, like this, this kind of is like post in a post apocalyptic world that people have kind of like pieced back together. Um, cause you really haven't, or at least I haven't, I, I, and not having seen all of critical either, maybe this is the case, but, um, Avalier seems like leaps and shoulders above anything else we've seen so far in Critical Role. Yeah, for sure. It, it is, definitely. It's, uh, yeah, it is. You don't really get the post apocalyptic vibe, like you're just sitting in with Critical Role. Um, but I mean, kind of that is what happened, right? Like, right. shit completely crumbled. And now I don't know the exact amount of years, but it's been hundreds of years. And so, like, yeah. civilization is now just starting to maybe kind of get back there and wasn't it implied that like um the floating cities all fall right they all crash right mm-hmm. but we don't necessarily know the link with um because there's we know there's broomstone at this time because i think right. it was it was it laren who has like the jewelry of broomstone yeah um so we know it's present but i am curious like what causes the cities to fall and why does it why why have we not seen like that kind of landscape in today's critical role world um with the presence of broomstone still accessible right my not that you're asking for an answer but my best guess there was well they fell because of the calamity in this massive right. like war right and then i think like the technology was lost um <laughs> i mean because so, we've yeah. got 
we've got Broomstone, which obviously is being utilized, but obviously, you know, Emir used his magic to make it happen. So there must be like a, a vast right. amount of magic that in addition to the Broomstone allows stuff like this to happen. And so I well, guess and, just... And, isn't know. there like a comment too in Calamity about... Um, maybe I'm like pulling this from somewhere else entirely, but I think there's like some conversation, maybe when they're talking about... Because it gets mentioned a few times, this conversation of Vespin Chloris and like people trying to replicate... Um, yeah. the Raven Queen's ascension and someone, maybe it's Laren makes a comment that's basically along the lines of like, why do people still do this? Like, we're basically like, why would anyone want to become a God? Like we pretty much already are. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. There was a comment, comment like that. that. That's like, like, dude, do you know, like the world we lit, like we're so advanced. Yeah. Um, which I, I think is such a great line, by the way, in terms of like the implication of, uh, or the foreshadowing of like <laughs> this apocalypse of biblical proportions. It's yeah. kind of like a Tower of Babel kind of yeah, feel yeah. to it. But um, yeah, I, I guess you know you think about Amir and the comment of him like with his magic, he lifted the city. Um, I guess with the calamity, it's not just like a loss of technology; it's a loss of um, you know, it's the age of Arcanum. So like a loss of literal ether but a loss yeah, like, of like arcane energy like and not like arcane knowledge and stuff too i guess yeah yeah so i'm kind of just rambling at this point but no, I'm just, that's what we're here for <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's such a rich episode i feel like we could just grab a couple of beers and just be like <laughs> so what about that part yeah 100 <laughs> percent. or you know Brennan lee mulligan being like oh the god of jerking off or whatever <laughs> his side characters were so great <laughs> yeah um but yeah 100 so. percent and uh i'm gonna kind of use that as a bit of a segue but you know as always just interrupt me or you know if you had something else go for it but speaking of vespin chloros um now for those of you that have been watching blake and i talk about all of campaign three uh blake referenced it earlier during the museum heist episode the journal of vespin chloros came up and we were like how do they know that name like the cast doesn't remember anything um uh, so we theorize that that they must know that from the legend of Vox Machina. Obviously now we know that it's from this more than likely that they referenced that. But anyway, back then I postulated that maybe that was Vecna. Um, I gotta, I gotta wind that back now because that was incorrect. The timelines do not line up. And um, do we know Vecna's original persona we we do not still because oh, okay. uh similar to asmodeus i don't think they can use the name vecna which is why was one of the reasons why i was like oh vespin is going to be you know vecna or whatever um but now having seen this and i probably could have figured it out before this but this made it abundantly clear that uh vespin is not vecna because vecna's shenanigans or at least the main ones for this time era would have already happened. Yeah, and okay. Vecna was trying to replicate what the matron of Ravens did and usurp a prime deity here. We know that that was not what Vespin was doing. Um, we still don't know right. like for certain what Vespin's doing, but it seems like trying to usurp a betrayer God. Um, so the point of this, of this soliloquy was just one to correct a previous uh, <laughs> theory, but two, just to kind of get us on, uh, Remember, we don't talk about our losses. We only <laughs> we only talk right. about our wins as loud as we that's can. Right. 
even when uh, they're randomly <laughs> occurring. But uh, just to get us on the subject of Vespins, so like, uh, I mean, this kind of encroaches on a bunch of other subjects of this episode, but I mean, I think you and I are at least probably on the same page that that's what he's doing, trying the ritual, but with the betrayer God. But I yeah, mean, I mean, I think, yeah, Sam's character did a good job of kind of, um, I think even Xerxes directly asked Pervon, like, just, just tell us what you mean <laughs> in as clear terms as possible. And he still did it. <laughs> and uh, Xerxes is like, why didn't he just say that? Like, what's the deal? <laughs> but, um, you know, Loquacious does a good job of kind of summing everything up. And that seems to be the case for sure is either, yeah, usurping a betrayer god, um, possibly what we saw, uh, you know, Asmodeus in pain in the opener. In the opening maybe, sequence. Maybe there's yeah. a connection there with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, some kind of, of he's, he's got a bad plan cause he's a bad dude. So, cause I wondered if he'd be kind of like a tragic character, like had the best of intentions and like unleash the calamity. But, um, I think it's safe to say he's <laughs> full blown evil. Yeah. But yeah. yeah. And I assume these are things we're going to find out, but I'm curious, like, was that his goal to usurp a betrayer God? And did he succeed or, right. you know, we know that the results of his actions are that all the betrayer gods escape and the calamity happens. So like, did he fail? But that was a byproduct. Was that what he was trying to do? Um, right. And like, maybe he did succeed. And one of these betrayer gods that we've always thought was x has actually been vespin chloris since this moment um what's interesting is that he's still alive in some form right. or fashion because he showed up in the mirror which i got very like voldemort vibes from that mm -hmm. moment uh yeah for sure yeah um but it's i wonder i was just also wondering why he was so interested in syrup as well i guess because he had the artifacts right from his um ritual i was i was wondering that too and so i didn't know if, if that was why or maybe just because sarah just kind of foiled whatever was happening by killing that invisible cultist so maybe he like showed yeah. up to be like you'll never do this in time type of thing um but yeah is is sarah does he in possession of the of the uh i think laren asked oh right asked laren for... has it right I don't know if he actually gave it to her or not. I can't remember um, if he actually handed it over. Um, but there's, there's for, for the implication of this group to kind of like, hey, we get together and we talk about all things happening, there seems to be some mistrust there because even in that exchange, uh, there wasn't like total transparency. It was kind of like, hey, I need that. And it was like, uh, I don't know, I'm going to give you that. But yeah. um, So I don't know if he actually handed it over or not. They seem kind of like for lack of a better analogy here, kind of like the Illuminati of the city. Like there are all these like very powerful yeah. people from different things that, you know, for whatever reason are working together, but I don't, and I do get the idea that they're friends, but I, I think they definitely like wouldn't get to where they are without like kind of having eyes in the back of their head. So I'm sure they're kind of just mistrustful yeah, to some I, extent, just because. Well, I mean, they're even like, you know, Xerxes' dream. They're even kind of like questioning, like, is this guy for real? Um, so maybe mistrust is too strong of a word. There's definitely like a, um, 
I don't know, just like a sense of, um, I guess, ascertaining motivations between, between the group. Um, and then I guess like, unlike the Illuminati, I didn't fully get the impression that they like actually control the city, but like maybe like in their various positions, like they got together and they were like, Hey, like we realize all of us can do some pretty good things for the city. So let's kind of pool our resources a bit. Um, yeah. cause you know, they mentioned like the, um, the seven, uh, I can't remember the actual description, like of the seven. Um, yeah, yeah. but, um, yeah, yeah. I don't know where I'm going with this, but <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot, to, a lot today. A lot of pieces to, yeah. to move around here. Um, but I'm trying to think, uh, Vespin, I think we'll clearly find out more of what's happening there, but I think the main thing I'm interested in is the fact that he's not dead. Like the fact that he survived what he was attempting to do it, at least in some form or fashion yeah. makes me think that he was successful. And so I'm right. just curious as, as to what the the goal actually was. Like, was it to usurp or was it to just yeah. unleash? Um, right. Uh, but not Vecna. So got that out of the way. Uh, where was I going from here? Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. The the dream sequence at the beginning. I wanted to, to talk about that a little bit. And I guess this ties to Vespin as well. Asmodeus, Asmodeus, however you say it, is clearly like in a weakened position. The Dawn Father come downs, crushing on his throat. Just a cool visual moment to show that this war between the gods is coming or more, more um, relevant than that. In that maybe Asmodeus was the one Vespin was trying to swap with. Yeah, I mean, maybe there's a double meaning there because I, you know, it could be totally unrelated and he's writhing in pain because, um, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's, it's obviously not just a dream. There's either some kind of implication of meaning there or it's foreshadowing the war that's going to come. But um, yeah, Asmodeus weakened, presumably maybe because of Vespin Chloris, but also he's getting, you know, beat up by the Dawnfather. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I don't know the reason for the pain. I do think, I do think, it's an, a neat detail positioning Asmodeus as the victim, yeah, and being put to death essentially, and Xerxes, um, you know, having to stand up for the little guy, so to speak. Um, not really apply here, but, <laughs> um, intervening basically. And Asmodeus being grateful, knowing some of the lore behind Asmodeus as a corrupter and a trickster yeah. and, you know, I mean, basically the devil. Um, yeah. I, I, to me, the implication I got is that Asmodeus is going to take advantage of Xerxes in some way. Um, and manipulate him in some way we saw his son was present um evandrin was present so like the two people who are closest to him are also involved in this dream sequence mm -hmm. which also implies to me that these are going to be um you know pieces on the chessboard that asmodeus is going to use for his manipulation i don't know if this is a reach or not it's just um 
I think I think it's too simple to just be like, oh, the story we've heard this whole time has been wrong, and Asmodeus is actually one of the good guys, and the Dawn Father's evil, uh, which was kind of the implication. It's like, who did we betray? Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, what what do you think about the whole thing? I'm kind of on the same page as you. I am just. It was such a weird. Uh, what's the word like reversal of what you would expect um and as you mentioned you know asmodeus is the the lord of the hells and you know manipulation and stuff so i was wondering like is this all just a manipulative tactic like maybe the dawn father was never even really there and this is all just a you know a way to get xerxes on his side or whatever for whatever reason um because wasn't it mentioned that Xerxes doesn't have a a deity that he follows? Yeah, I think yeah, I think so. Which is interesting because he's a paladin. Yeah, it was really interesting. Which also, <laughs> to me just even more points to his his proclivity to be manipulated. Yeah, and obviously we haven't spent too much time with the character yet to really know them, but Xerxes seems like a really honorable like right. do the right thing type of guy. Like right. I thought uh, Luis did such a great job. It's one of my, in a, in an episode full of really memorable and cool characters, he like honestly stuck out to me the most. Um, uh, what am I getting at? So I just, uh, I want to know what's going on there. Is it just as simple and not that this would be simple, but is it just that that's all manipulative tactics and Asmodeus is just trying to like mess with his, his head or is there really some like, not that the Dawn Father's evil and Asmodeus is good, but is there more gray to the the story there that we're lacking? And yeah. maybe just a dream, maybe just manipulation. But Xerxes banishing away the Dawn Father essentially. Yeah, you know, he even says like, "No mortal can do what you've just done." Like, what's going on there? And this is yeah, I didn't read it that way. I didn't. I and I. I did he say no one could do what you just did or did he say no one would do what you've just done? I have it here in my notes. Let me see real quick. Okay. Cause um, I just, I just rewatched it, the intro just cause I loved it the first time, but the implication I got was just like, no one would have been as, as generous as you have just been with my life. Yeah. I mean that, that could definitely be, uh, the implication I, th- I swear I just had this where I don't know where it is though. Um, da, 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 da. All right. Um, okay. I found all I said in my notes was the, the figure notes that no mortal can do what Xerxes has just done. Mm-hmm. So that's my words. So it is yeah. possible that I, uh, you know, well, either way, I mean, yeah, I, I uh, he's he's the first knight so he's clearly gifted right but um i can only assume we're going to find out some information more about this potential relationship uh between him and asmodeus or his role to play in this whole thing um doesn't seem like it's a reoccurring dream seems like it's just the first time he's dreamt something like that but um there's only four episodes total so like this thing i think we've had some incredible foundation setting uh, happening um i i can only assume this thing's going to kick off really fast tonight yeah um, and i almost wonder if maybe they're going to avoid combat until you know the third or fourth episode because 
with that many people at a table, it can really eat up a lot of time and it feels like there's a lot to get through. So, but I don't know. I mean, it could be some every session for all I know. Yeah. So very true. Um, I'm interested to kind of see the balance there now that you brought that up. Uh, But one other quick home run, like super reach uh, is we know that in terms of uh, Xerxes being able to like, banish the dawn father let's call it we know that there was potentially a ritual performed to usurp a god is there any chance that xerxes somehow in this chaos like stepped is the one that has been imbued with godlike powers for whatever reason uh i would say no because (laughs) (laughs) there's nothing else that implies that that happened (laughs) just you wait but I told you we don't we don't talk about our losses here. We <laughs> I have been saying since day one that <laughs> yeah, we'll, see. we'll see what's special about him if if there is something special about him. Yeah. So and again, this could all be tossed up to manipulation. But what role did his husband have to play in this? That Asmodeus was taking the time to to share that memory or whatever it was. Um. Well, to me, that just speaks to the manipulation piece of it. Yeah. You know, it speaks like, hey, I understand. I'm, 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 you know, here I am defenseless and weak and I'm going to show you someone else you knew who was at one point defenseless and killed. Um, so I, I think it's very clever DMing by Brennan to connect Xerxes with Asmodeus. Um, presumably we'll get a little bit of the background what happened there, but, um, but yeah. Yeah. So. Very interesting. Uh, I want to ask you about the, I think we're like already over an hour on this. <laughs> this recap is long. <laughs> I want to ask you about the Apogee solstice. Mm. Cause that was a nice little detail on how not all solstices are the same. Um, but every now and then you have like the mega solstice. Yeah. Um, I was curious, do you think we're heading towards something like that in campaign three or with Vecna and campaign one, do you think that may have been what happened in the first season or the first campaign? I don't know. I mean, these solstices keep coming up and this is the first time that this Apogee one has ever been mentioned, at least to my knowledge. So I would say that I don't, if you made gun to my head and made me guess, I don't think it was what was happening in campaign one to me. I think it was probably just unless retroactively we're going to like say that, but at the time it wasn't made that big of a deal of, in campaign three, though, maybe because with from EXU original EXU with like right. the oh no plateau and just all this weird realms bleeding into each other, which is what happens during a normal solstice. But it kind of feels like this would be a great setup to be like the last time this happened was the calamity, and now we've you know thousands of years later we're up to the ne- the the next one or whatever. Um, but. Yeah, I'm I'm super I know I'm rambling here. So we have whatever Vespin is doing that, you know, yeah. at least in some form or fashion knocked over dominoes that led to the calamity. But what if that wasn't the only thing? I'm real worried about what Laren is doing. What does she have in mind? What does she want this artifact for? You know, even before any of the Vespin stuff happened, at least until she wasn't aware of at this point she talks about like, this is the moment I've been waiting for when she finds out that that reading is 0.5. What is she planning? And is it, I don't think she's 
evil, but it might be something selfish or something. No, I got I got that entire implication, like the the hubris of. She even says something like, "You know, I've I've everything I've basically." Um, and I can't, I can't think of the phrasing, but like sacrifice, sacrifice for this, thank you. You know, maybe her marriage, um, has, yeah, is now implied to be worth it because they finally gotten to this point. I, I think in Brennan's, in the opening of this is a story of grief and betrayal. I don't think it's just the betrayal gods. I think we're going to see some of our party turn against one another. And I think you're spot on. I think Laren is the most obvious choice for that. She's already vying for the artifacts of Vespin Chloris. Um, this is clearly a really big moment, but I, I don't think she's evil. I don't envision like sort of like this transition to like a cackling, um, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I envision, you know, it's like um, it's someone who genuinely feels like they're doing the right thing and the right thing for all people. And it's like, um, lock with uh on lost where he smashes the computer <laughs> and you know the bunker starts to self-destruct yeah and he looks at desmond and he's like i was wrong like i i if something like that doesn't happen i will be surprised but i envision laren full charging ahead on this and then in the final moments wow i really <laughs> this was a <laughs> i've made a huge mistake <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so, I, I'm on the same page, and I, I think that whatever Vespin did was the first thing that happened, but I think if nothing else happened, the Calamity would probably, or at least the Betrayer Gods would not be freed. I think whatever Laren is going to do with shifting the Ley Lines and the Plains is going to be yeah. what allows them to escape. And it's a nice little, it's a nice little um, touch on the story in the sense of like, it's especially if it's done in a way where like the history books, so to speak, she never goes down in the history books as being the architect for the whole thing. And yet she being the one who is actually more to blame than Vespin Chloris. Um, I think that would just be a really, I think you've pointed out would be a really crazy cool detail. Yeah. If it does happen sure. that way. Yeah. So. And I wonder and these are things we'll find out, but I just wonder, I want to know what she has in mind and how that disenchanted solar bow is going to help her get there. I assume mm -hmm. it's just maybe component materials for some like spell she wants to do or something. Um, speaking of that solar bow though, uh, not to cut, not to cut you off. If you no. had more, um, I actually, I actually need to wrap up, <laughs> oh, Okay, but, uh, let's, let's keep, let's keep going as best we can. And I apologize for people watching. I just, you know, it's the dad life. Yeah. So. Yeah. No worries. And if you need to go, that's, that's fine. No. Yeah. Let's, let's go for another like 10 minutes maybe. And then I got to, all right. You know, 10 minutes at most, I guess. All right. All right. Let me get my biggest things, which definitely this, um, this bow, we know that whatever Vespin was doing, I think did something and then perhaps summoned a solar for a sacrifice maybe he didn't summon it maybe the solar came as like a defense mechanism to whatever right. maybe it was a trap of some kind yeah whatever they yeah. were attempting because i think either sarah or someone says they noticed both the presence of celestial and infernal runes yeah so i yeah I, the impl implication i got also was the same thing was that there was some kind of like bringing of both sides to this one spot yeah and what's going on there but um second maybe maybe even a solar is like a prison guard for lack of a better word to where the betrayer gods are being imprisoned yeah, like maybe yeah. it was the first step to maybe breaching that that jail 
Um, but one interesting thing I wanted to, to share um, is that in, I think it's Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, but one of the source books, there was a named solar, uh, and I'm going to be pronouncing this wrong, but it's start, it's X-A-L-I-C-A-S, Zalicus, maybe, um, who was the right hand of Korlon, who is like a deity of arcane magic and the fae and stuff. And so anyway, the, the, the lore of this solar was that they were injured during the calamity so badly that they never recovered. Uh, she lost her ability to fly, to see, and the, her ability to leave the material plane. So like she could not go back to like the celestial plane. And apparently it took her over 100 years to even be able to move again. And during that time, there just was like a motionless body in the wildlands. And once able to actually move again, just wandered around Wild Mount hoping to like repair the damages of the calamity. So to me, that sounds awful. Like maybe the origin story for the solar that lost its weapon. And oh, what a great pickup. Yeah. I'm reading on the wiki about her. Um, what an awesome detail. Yeah. That, that could be really cool. That could be an awesome pickup for sure. So I'm just excited to hear maybe more about what actually happened in that moment. And if that, this is one in the same solar or, Maybe we have yet to meet Zalicus, but they're clearly tied to the Calamity, so I feel like we might see her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Man, that's cool. Okay. Um, yeah, what an awesome detail. Yeah, I'm actually just I'm reading the whole biography. This is really cool. So, okay. That's why we need more sourcebook stuff, man, especially with this series coming out. Like, some of these details are pretty cool. For sure. And... Basically, the only other things I had were just nerding out on some of the lore, so I, I'll spare you that for now. But uh, maybe in the next episode or something, just we'll, we'll save some more time on our next episode because I'm sure the recap will be a little bit shorter too. Yeah, so have a little bit more time to talk about it for sure. Um, I think for those watching, I think other cool little details that you guys picked up on, I think throw it in the comments and we can all kind of enjoy it together. Um, anything else you wanted to talk about, Will, for tonight? Um, I don't think so. Just. Shout out to Travis playing a detective noir. He killed yeah, it. <laughs> right, right. So, okay, cool. Well, let's uh, do a thumbnail. What should we do? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, maybe this, I don't know if this really will read, but like Brennan scaring and Travis yeah, being yeah. like terrified. Yeah, yeah, sure. All Which right. one do you want to be? Uh, I'll be the, like the jump scare if you want okay. to be the, the scared one. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, you guys enjoy the episode tonight, and we'll be back uh, to talk about episode two. And in the meantime, you can follow our Twitter at the Pixelus. And other than that, catch you later. Yep. Have a good one, y'all. See ya. Bye.